0: I started to wonder, decades later, if running for me was the first time that I had ever had facts ascribed to my name. And I wonder if being lied about and called racial epithets from a young age and to know from age four or five that I'm living in a society that speaks of you in a way that you know is not accurate and you know that's not who yourself to be and so for an entire lifetime of people lying to you and lying about you saying you did something that you didn't do, saying that you were someplace that you weren't, somebody saying or assuming you would do something or had done something that had never even entered your mind, I think running and getting times for the first time for me as a teenager was the first time that I ever had experience with facts you know what I mean like you can't lie about your time you can't lie about your race it's there in the newspaper in the results section and I think that that experience was so intoxicating to me that like you could call me whatever you want and you could say all these racist stereotypes about black people you want but you can't never say that Knox Robinson didn't run 941 on a Tuesday night.
1: Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraoli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My guest this week is Knox Robinson. Knox is a returning guest to the show. He first appeared back in episode 12, which was recorded on Boston Marathon weekend in 2018. He was also the first person that I interviewed for the Morning Shakeouts Going Long series almost four years ago, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes. In addition to being a friend of mine, Knox is a writer, coach, and athlete who is now based in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he spent years in New York City where he co founded the Black Roses NYC running crew. Knox ran collegiately at Wake Forest before stepping away from the sport for the better part of a decade to work in the music industry. He managed the careers of various artists and also served as the editor in chief of The Fader, which is a magazine dedicated to covering hip hop and indie music, style, and culture. We recorded this conversation back in late July, but I've held on to it for a couple of reasons. Number one, Knox was a guest on a lot of other podcasts this past summer, and I didn't want this one to get lost in the shuffle. And two, well, it was at times, quite frankly, an uncomfortable exchange as we discussed difficult topics like running while black, race in America, the role of media in all of that, and more. But I'm sharing it here today in its entirety because it had a profound impact on me, and I hope it will do the same for you. We also got into Knox's roots and his background as a runner and a storyteller, his writing practice and what it looks like, and the idea of running as a sort of leveling agent. We also discussed his recent move to LA and what he hopes to achieve there, setting up a high altitude retreat in the mountains of Mexico, and a lot more. Before we dive in, I want to say thank you to Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Look, I love this brand and all that it's about. Founded in Boston in 2014, Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. For many runners, late fall represents peak mileage season, the time for going a little farther, maybe even a little faster. Today, when the idea of distance has different connotations, fall's promise remains the same. As I've been putting in the miles these past few months, a couple pieces in particular from Tracksmith's fall collection have been getting a lot of use. The Off-Roads shorts, a two-in-one, designed for the trails, have plenty of pockets for keys, food, and or my phone, while the compression liner helps keep my quads and hammies warm on cold mornings. The Off-Roads Go Cap has spent a lot of time on my head, whether I'm on the road or off it. It's comfortable, lightweight, and looks good. So basically... Everything you'd ever want in a hat. Tracksmith wants to say thank you running this holiday season for being the simple act that has kept us sane in a turbulent year and they're offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out tracksmith.com and use the code MARIO15. That's MARIO15 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Gooder is a new sponsor for the show and I am stoked about this partnership. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip and they're polarized to protect your eyes. And did I mention that they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs and a couple of my favorite colors are a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and you'll get free shipping on your first pair. Look good, run gooder. Okay, let's get right into this one with Knox Robinson. All right, Knox Robinson, I believe this is your second appearance on the Morning Shakeout podcast and probably third or fourth appearance in the Morning Shakeout. It is a pleasure to welcome you back.
0: I'm super stoked to uh, to be in conversation with you Mario so thanks for uh, asking me to join
1: I think where I'd like to kick this off is digging into your current reading lineup what books have you been digging into lately
0: oh man it's rough because I've been away from my um, I've been away from the stacks you know uh, for, for so long I haven't been in my apartment since you know the the beginning of March. And so I'm really having separation anxiety. Um, I've been totally um, reading and rereading this slim volume of poetry by Dane Smith um, called Homie. And I find like that's really incredible. And I've also been reading a book of poetry from uh, Roger Robinson, um, a UK poet. Uh, entitled "A Portable, pa- A Portable Paradise," um, and both of those books, actually, um, as disparate as their sources may be and their voices may be, have really kind of bookended. I guess, yeah, kind of bookended the events of the past several months for me in some ways. So, um, yeah, those those two. Slim volumes of poetry have have definitely been big on my list. And I probably also have a really big book list of books that I'm ready to get back into once I
1: finally get into my apartment. Well, let's dig into those slim volumes of poetry a little bit. What is it about them that has been so prescient during these past few months? Well,
0: uh, A Portable Paradise by Roger Robinson. Um, it came to my attention after it won the uh, T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry, uh, I guess at the end of last year, or early this year. Um, And it was put out by a small UK press, uh, People Tree Press, I think is the name of it. And, you know, Scarcity Complex. I just fell all over myself to order a couple copies of this book, Um, maybe a little bit because of the surname, maybe because, you know, it was It was interesting to see this brother uh, win the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. And then I found out that um, he kind of came out of the spoken word scene um, in the late 90s that Charlie Dark, uh, the writer and poet and DJ and producer and awesome runner and and fitness advocate, um, was in, was at the center of. And so Charlie Dark knows this dude roger robinson and they must have been on gigs together um and so just to kind of know he was coming out of that cool generation of 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 uh london life was really exciting the the material itself revolves around the tragedy of um the grenfell towers the housing um tower that burned uh tragically in london and um so it was really robinson coming to grips with that carnage and that destruction and 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 everything that that meant for for the lives that were lost so for me as someone who was in the city new york city for 911 there were parallels there and uh yeah other themes in the book you know he's kind of talking about um what it means to be young and black and male in London, um, what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be first generation. And then also he's got some really like interesting lo- great love poems t- to Sade. So <laughs> it's a really, really interesting book. And um, I think it really was a serendipitous, um, piece of literature to have with me in the wake of Ahmad arbery's killing um because they're right on my bedstand every night i had an example to reflect upon wherein a poet is um doing that difficult work of of uh sifting through tragedy and making sense of tragedy
1: There's a lot that I want to dig into there. And the first piece that I'm going to pull out, because I know a bit about your history as a writer Mm. and a poet, but how much of the parallel is between, you know, Robinson and the time that he was working as a spoken word poet and yourself in the mid to late nineties when you were trying to do a very similar thing?
0: Um, Without knowing, without matching up the dates, just kind of looking at anecdotally his relationship with Charlie Dark in that scene, I'd have to say that the work that those guys were doing um, was the reason it occurred to me to be a spoken word artist, to be a poet. Um, You know, Charlie Dark was in this incredible um, group called Attica Blues. Um, and so for me to be graduating from university in, in the United States and to be reading about, you know, these this cool band in London that was like mixing jazz references and, you know, beat science and spoken word and poetry, and it was just ineffably cool, that was like, okay, that's what I wanted to do, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I'm trying to do. And to think that Roger Robinson was in the mix, um with all that is cool, you know? Um, and, I, I, and I really kind of shot, shot my shot. I really kind of moved to New York, you know, under those under those auspices
1: and under that aegis for sure. Looking back at their work now and rereading it over the course of the past few months, has your perspective or interpretation of it changed?
0: No, um, if anything, it's just underscored to me what it means to be a writer. You know, I think a lot of stuff recently has helped me kind of see a marked division between what the popular perception of a writer's life is or an artist's life. Um, And for me, a writer is with the people, a writer. Belongs to the people. I uh, one of my favorite writers is this um, Argentine novelist, uh, or Argentine multidisciplinary writer uh, Julio Cortazar, and I remember reading this interview about Cortazar near the end of his life, and um, he was walking after reading. He was walking through, you know, an empty square in Spain, and some kids were like in the shadows by a fountain playing guitar and just like talking and one of the kids goes up to cortazar and like offers him a piece of cake and cortazar like oh no no i i don't want your cake like you know I, i can't take anything from you and the kid is like it's not that you're taking from me it's you who's given us so much and you know just the the job of a writer is to to be with the people to give voice to the people's voices, you know, to tell the stories that might not otherwise be told, whether that's because people are silenced or because people have met a tragic end, as in the case of of, uh, Robinson's work around um, Grenfell Tower. So it really just kind of, to me,
1: sharpens the focus on the work of a writer. Did you feel like you were in need of that reminder at this point in time?
0: Um, no, I mean, my ego wants to say, <laughs> my ego wants to say no. My ego's like, I need no reminder. Um, but really, the the unmooring that I experienced on a personal level in the wake of Ahmad Arbery's murder, um, how disorienting it was how isolating it was, how confusing it was. Um, I really didn't find solace um, in the social media at hand. I wasn't satisfied with the hot takes that um, I was reading in mainstream media publications. Uh, And so I just thought about my own personal reaction and i thought about my own personal experience of it and then i just thought you know as a writer what might i contribute to the conversation what might i say about ahmaud arbery um and so rather than look you know in a hard-nosed way right at the immediate facts in my in front of our faces i just thought to look to some other models and to you know choose a different tack
1: where were you when you first heard of Ahmad arbery's murder
0: you know it was coming in waves i um as as you know like i'm 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 a politics person i'm a news junkie and so i i had heard about the murder as like a blip on the radar whether it came up on Google News, in like a regional section, or or something. And I was aware of the basic details of the case insofar as they had been reported in the beginning of March. So much so that by the time the New York Times wrote the first of their big pieces, I was kind of surprised that it took so long for them to put a story together. And then it was so far long after the murder that it made me wonder why they even wrote about it at all, aside from like the glaring, you know, injustice of it all. Um, but maybe the injustice and the lack of action, um, was, was finally what clarified it for, you know, the people in the, the, uh, Classy offices at, at the New York Times in
1: the middle of Manhattan. What was it about the story or maybe the timing of the reporting of the news that really hit you on a deep level? The first thing that
0: hit me was I saw a little, I read a local news report. And Ahmaud Arbery's mother was talking to the reporter at the end of the story and she just didn't know what to do. So there had been no media coverage and I and, and I just, the story was so simple as it was written and so straightforward and I just couldn't come to grips with the fact that here was this mom sitting on her couch saying that because of like the COVID era and the shutdowns that she didn't know what to do. She hadn't gotten any answers. She didn't. The, the county offices were shut down. Nobody was returning calls. You know, it, it, they're in this little tiny town of Satilla Shores, and or, or or you know the the neighboring uh, town where where they lived, and there was no Black Lives Matter chapter there to organize a protest. And so she was saying like they they didn't know if they were going to go down to the police station and protest because you weren't allowed to go around in big groups because of coronavirus and so i was just like wow this is really crazy this woman just like lost her son and she's just at home with nobody with no recourse and 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 no plan of action you know um and that was really mind-blowing to me early on
1: when more details of the story came out and it became known that he was out for a run and these two men had targeted him and murdered him in the middle of the street did that take it to another level for you as a black man who's a runner in america
0: um it was when the video was released i mean because obviously Mm -hmm. I, i knew about the details early on and as far as the mounting information that we're still getting, and how he was tracked and hunted and cornered, you know, repeatedly as he tried to escape, uh, as as we're seeing from the reenactments, um, it was really seeing the video more than anything that uh, took it to another dimension of pain for me and another dimension of of surreality. Honestly, um, yeah, I was out on a run one night and I was thinking about it and uh, I just keep kept thinking about the way his body moved and he just moved like all of us, you know? I mean, it was just like it's, it's tough to put it in this way in such a casual vernacular way, but his body was moving. Like he was just trying to like avoid some bullshit. I mean, the basic principle of running is to get from point A to point B with the minimal expenditure of energy, right? Whether you're Elliot Kipchoge or you're Amon And so this dude was just trying to go around the truck and to think that a double-barreled shotgun was, <laughs> you know, flanking him on his left and he just swerved to the right to go around. I was like, wow, he, this, this kid is just... You know, and then as time went on, as time still goes on, I just keep thinking about these last minutes and I keep thinking about, you know, his life ticking down and like what he was thinking and what he was feeling and, and how differently that run was ending up from how it started when he left his house.
1: You know, did you have a response right away or did you just sit with it yourself for a little while?
0: No, I I I, you know, I had to sit with it because I I I can't I can't prescribe what everybody else's reaction should be in the face of violence and trauma, but I think the part of me on the inside who operates as a writer, I feel that like you have to bear witness. And so so many people around the spectrum we're just saying like they couldn't watch it. I know so many people who, who couldn't watch, it. I probably know a lot of people who still haven't seen that video. Um, and I'm caught in between because, you know, in some, in some situations in some, in some senses, you don't want to witness that violence. You don't want to absorb that violence, you know? Um, I always remember, like when I was went to study in China, I was I met with my professor on the first day, and he was just going on and on about, oh, the Tibetan Buddhists, they don't even go to the movies because they don't want to have violent images on their brain because they think it's gonna hold them back from enlightenment. And in my mind, like the, I was like, wow, that's that's heavy. And then the professor said see how long you can go without making a negative judgment. And the first thing I thought was, yeah, right. And it was like a little yeah. light bulb off of my head. Like I didn't even last a nanosecond before making right. a negative judgment. Um, and here and here, these monks and, and nuns aren't even going to the movies. So on one hand, you don't want to absorb these images of violence, you know. But on the other hand, it is a writer's duty to bear witness to uh the unspeakable if only to you know speak of that horror to others
1: how hard was that for you to work through
0: um it's a process and i don't mean that in a traumatized way i think it's a process like any other and you know upon reflection i think i've been definitely working through uh the trauma of you know, growing up black in America in many ways, um, but then also, you know, you, you turn a corner and you have to understand that there's there's trauma to you know work through growing up, you know, as a cisgender male in America. Like, you know, there's there's various kind of things identities, realities that are, that are part of us that, that we have to work through. And so for me, I guess that's just, uh, part of my, part of my thing. I I don't run away from it. If anything, I, I kind of look to that as like, as my métier for sure, when it comes to thinking about the work.
1: How did you interpret the response from the greater community of runners who were, Hashtag running with mod and posting about the fact that black men and women in America, whether they're runners or not, just don't have it the same as white people do. Yeah, I mean, on a lot of levels, it's complex because
0: the very idea that that would be revelatory to some is pretty tough to take you know um it's 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 tough to think that a young man would have to be killed in cold blood you know um in broad daylight out on a jog to affect that kind of consciousness raising but nevertheless here we are and so just like watching the video, it was really just part of me was watching the reactions and like understanding the reactions. but then ultimately after that, I also had to like turn away from that popular response and just think for myself because i didn't I definitely didn't relate to all the opinions i I, I definitely don't didn't relate or even agree with all the hot takes. Um, and so I definitely had to like pull away and, and just spend some time working in another vein, um, just so I didn't fall into taking up another seat in the chattering class and just, you know, bloviating and, and, and turning out or, you know, rehashing opinion. You know what I mean?
1: (sighs) No, I, I I don't know that I I can know, like what you mean because of who I am and the experiences that I haven't had as a white runner in America. Yeah, right. Um,
0: but also. <laughs> Also, we just been sitting around for two or three years, you know, liking and reposting everything Elliot Kipchoge had to say about no human is limitless, you know. And so, you gotta believe that over the course of each of our individual lifetimes, we're learning and growing, and we're we're becoming more human. We're becoming deeper souls. We're becoming more empathetic and we're becoming more connected to people who are so unlike us. I know that that kind of idea, um, rings a little hollow in the United States, in our culture in these days. Um, and if anything, it's amazing to see how swiftly we've moved on from, you know, the halcyon days of, of the Obama era. But, um, but i don't know i i would think that conscious people sentient beings are are endeavoring to to at least think about what it does mean you know and then what and also what i was speaking of is you know honestly i've i've never left the house afraid to run and i've been black and running my whole life i haven't really heard that narrative and then I've spoken to a lot of friends, black friends, black runner friends, who that doesn't necessarily resonate with them either. And so, coming from um, a position of fear, it doesn't really brook with everybody's experience and it doesn't really brook with everybody's temperament. So, in a lot of ways, a lot of the narrative of running while black shall we say that has been supported by white owned white dominated white supremacist in nature mainstream media is really just sort of enabling uh a narrative of 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 black fear of um black weakness um and and also kind of centers whiteness in that way you know because in some ways running while black doesn't have anything to do with white people at all. It's just running while running, you know, so it doesn't. So for a lot of us who don't really run in fear, um, also don't like run because of white people (laughs) or not run because of white people. Now, I, I gotta say that every, there's so many different journeys and there's so much, you know, happening on, on the spectrum. So I understand um, that running in public is not necessarily a safe space for many, if not most women. Um, And I understand that black bodies moving through space in this kind of oppressive political regime that we live in. I understand that that's a debilitating prospect i'm just talking about the spirit of running and the relationship that i have had with running and have, have cultivated with running over the course of my lifetime that's i'm just speaking about my personal experience
1: yeah i appreciate you sharing that and i do think it is a really nuanced conversation and a lot of the the mass media that you speak of they end up taking one layer of it and just running, right? The the running while black, I mean, I put a link in my newsletter this week of a documentary that Runner's World produced. And that's just one of many examples of running while black. I think Sports Illustrated did something on it. Um, women's Running did something along those lines. And I think that really reinforces your point. And I'd love to just dig into that a little bit more because if – that's not necessarily a healthy approach. How do we knock down some of these narratives that are that are getting out there that aren't necessarily helping anyone?
0: Yeah, I, I think that consciousness raising in general is helpful. So I think that, you know when you look at <laughs> the paroxysms of guilt, uh, <laughs> from 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 some white runners in the comment section on people's social media. I mean, maybe it's helpful that folks are considering issues that uh, are are challenges and deterrents and barriers to others that they hadn't considered. So that's cool. But if we really sign off on that narrative as the exhaustive, definitive narrative, then we're really missing out on, well, we're also just obfuscating like the incredible richness, not only of the experience that a lot of us have to this day, but also, you know, my work with, you know, icons in the past and like moments in the past. And so it's just tough to read headlines that running has always been white when, I mean, it started in Africa. I was laughing the other day. I was thinking the other day, like for a, for for some of us, you know, coming from like a more cultural cultural nationalist background, you know, there was a the refrain growing up that like such and such started in Africa. I mean, you like that talk to some black folks, and we can rattle off a list of inventions that you wouldn't know uh were innovations from black people. Um, ice cream, open heart surgery, the traffic light. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's like Black kids got Some some black kids like got to know that kind of stuff, you know. And so the idea that running is white just because Bill Bowerman, you know, published a little chapbook called jogging, I don't know. Like you, <laughs> that's a hard sell to to some of us who kind of came up thinking about um, the providence of, of 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 black excellence and black innovation on a global level from 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 our earliest roots as humans. You know what I mean? So if 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 humanity started in Africa if <laughs> and they were running in Africa, then obviously running started off as a black thing. You can't say running has always been white. Like that just that doesn't even make sense to a lot of us, you know?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of these convenient narratives just end up emerging in the media as it's ought to do ends up taking them and running with them until they're exhausted and then it's on to the next one.
0: The life of Ted Corbett alone, the life of Ted Corbett single-handedly is a refutation of the whole Bill Bowerman running has always been white narrative. I mean, Ted Corbett's resume makes makes Bill Bowerman's accomplishments look like... Petty. <laughs> just, it makes Bill Bowerman just look like, you know, just, I don't know, like... Bill Brown's an incredible guy you know what I mean like definitely definitely his, his innovations and his and his and his and his accolades are, are there uh, obviously um, as we know and, and people fall all over themselves to remind us but when you compare his CV next to Ted Corbett's CV I, I don't know man <laughs> Bill brown was a good coach you know what I mean but other than that it's like Ted Corbett definitely has credentials. And that was like, you know, a black man from North Carolina who
1: went on to do amazing things. So along these lines, what can the media do better? Is the media capable of doing better? And speaking for myself as someone who is, I guess, in it, even though on an independent level, what can we do better to knock down some of these convenient narratives and tell the stories that need to be told. I I don't know if I've, I wonder if I've
0: become like more radicalized, you know, like I, I I used to think I was in the media. I I definitely have edited a magazine. I definitely have written parts of books. I definitely have self-published books and, you know, um, Done my share of 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 media making, but seeing the the, the 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 insistent calls for increased representation in the media for for black faces in the media has just made me think that like folks aren't going far enough. Like we we need someone said the other day like representation is not the same thing as revolution. So we don't need more representation in the media. Like, we need more media. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, so what people in the media could do is commit media suicide. You know what I mean? Maybe, like, for all the 10 running podcasts out there that, like, white dudes are interviewing other white dudes and listening to themselves talk, maybe those could shut down... And we could, you know, create some space for other voices. You know what I mean? Like having me on your podcast, that's great. I'm edified. You and I have a great, you know, relationship and it's incredible as an opportunity to get ideas out. But that's not the same thing as like you feeling competitive with, you know, a black woman's podcast. You know what I mean? I mean, like competing for guests with like somebody else's podcast it's just like you're in you're you're in your zone you know what i mean and so if anything we could des- diversify the media in more in deeper ways you know what i mean in more invasive ways it's not just about melanating your guests it's about having you know whatever the morning blackout. <laughs> I, don't know I don't know what it would call, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I just think that, and 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 I'm just talking to you just because it's just you and I, one on one. But I definitely think, you know, for everybody who wants to, you know, mock up a, a photo of themselves on the cover of Runner's World and say like, we need more black people on the cover of Runner's World. I mean, I've been on the cover of Runner's World twice, you know, and it it doesn't change anything. It's when you have a black editor-in-chief of Runner's World, then maybe the conversation starts. You know what I mean? Maybe. Because you could also have a black editor-in-chief who would just be a terrible person and there could also be, you know, a a worse fate. So it's about getting the right people in the right places, honestly.
1: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And as someone who, even though I'm, independent now and I work for myself, but has worked for a major running publication and has worked in other areas of the industry. That's what needs to change. We need to get more black writers, more black hosts, more black editors, more black people in positions of decision-making within companies that keep this industry moving. It's it's not happening at nearly the rate that it has to, because it's still very much the rich white man's world as, you know, a white man who who's in it. And, and I would love to see that change more than me having more people of color on my podcast, more than having more, you know, BIPOC runners on the cover of Runner's World or some other magazine or these images like permeating the the pages of of these publications like that's all that's all well and good and it's important but we need to diversify the the actual landscape the people who are telling the stories and putting this stuff out
0: yeah definitely i mean it's got to be those people on the the mastheads you know um really i mean when you think Vanity Fair just has this elegant um, cover of uh, Viola Davis, the actor. And it was the first cover um, that was shot by a black person, the photographer. Vanity Fair just now has their first cover shot by a black person. You know? Like, who's making those decisions? Um, it's It's... It's wild, I mean, obviously there's been changes at Vanity Fair and Radhika Jones, the editor in chief has 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 been bringing in changes, but it's like, man, until people on the inside are making the decisions, so much of what's on the outside is is just window dressing, you know
1: yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right about that. We've been going for a half hour or so down a road that i I frankly didn't think we would end up on, at least at this part of the conversation, but I'd love to just pump the brakes a little bit here and get into your story, your background, your work a little bit for my listeners who might not be familiar with you, might've missed you first time around on the podcast or the going long interview that we did a few years ago. Your friend of mine, your competitive runner, your coach, your writer and a poet, as I alluded to earlier, I'd love to go back to your beginnings. You were born in San Diego. You grew up there. First conversation we had, you talked to me a bit about watching your dad in the early running boom and just thinking that, almost taking for granted that that's just how life was. And I'd love for you to just reflect on that period of your life for a little bit.
0: What's interesting is that like in recent months, uh, I've seen more and more uh, of my peers in urban running kind of like talk about their own roots and what I took for granted. I'm seeing a lot of other brothers and sisters also took for granted. And that's that like running was like a black thing. That's what they did. Um, You know, uh, this, uh, this brother uh, Rasan, who was one of the founders of, of Resident Runners Crew in New York, just wrote a really awesome essay for um, Under Armour blog. Uh, not to send traffic over to Under Armour, but <laughs> <laughs> but he wrote this really amazing uh, essay about you know growing up and running cross country and, and his dad running, and so he thought that's what it was supposed to do, and it wasn't until again Ahmad Arbery's uh, murder that it occurred to him that. You know, maybe it was transgressive or problematic. So, yeah. So for a l- I grew up, you know, non-specific. I grew up um, seeing my dad run. It was you know I was lived in Southern California and then uh, Houston, Texas, and then upstate New York. So like a lot of other kids, I was into like BMX bikes and falling off a skateboard and you know just sort of a boy life in America. You might describe it. So. Um, I definitely didn't have an athletic background. I definitely didn't um didn't kind of go down that way, but I found myself, you know, as time went on, attracted to other kinds of pursuits. I mean, I, one of my first passions was cycling. I was into to cycling before I got into running actually. And um yeah, I, I I don't know. So yeah, in some ways, parts of my own childhood um, seemed to me to be weird and other parts seemed to me to be super boring.
1: <laughs> Why is that?
0: Yeah, because I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, I, I, I kind of, I mean, even if like you're, you know, one of the only black kids in your school, you're still a kid, so you're still doing like kid things. So I didn't really think about it Um, that wild and then also my parents like really instilling like pro-black and cultural nationalist values in me early on, it didn't, you know, strike me as crazy. I never, there was never a moment where I like found out about Malcolm X. Like no one ever like told me about Malcolm X. Like I had children's books about Malcolm X Uh, and, you know, aphorisms from the black Panthers, were kind of like bandied about at my dinner table. So, like, I definitely grew up, um, you know, definitely think about thinking about black revolutionary politics, um, uh, even though there's always more and more to learn. And so, if anything, just the trajectory of my life has been um, just learning, learning more about those things, that, that struggle um, over the course of my life, rather than just sort of like, Having a moment of awakening where I, I realized, like you know, my political standing in the country or whatever.
1: How did you view your father's pursuit of running?
0: Again, I, 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 again, like a lot of kids, I probably thought it was tedious. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, you're getting up early, you're out in the cold, you're waiting forever for you know your dad to finish, and then he doesn't win the race. And then you're, like, embarrassed that your dad, like, doesn't win. <laughs> you know what I mean? So then you're, like, all, like, crying and shit like that. So, you know, for me, my parents, like, teased me later. But, yeah, I I I would assume my dad was going to win the race. And he was, like, a middle of the pack runner who did it for fun and did it for enjoyment. Um, so it wasn't like he was, like, in contention for for the, the laurels or anything like that. Um, so... Yeah, I guess I just, I guess I just studied it. And I guess I just internalized it. You know, I didn't, I didn't valorize it. I didn't. You know, I had a, you know, kind of rocky relationship with my father over the course of my childhood, um, and so, yeah, it wasn't anything we bonded over. It was just um, a model. You know, it's like the the poet. Gary Gary Snyder wrote it's like when when making a when using an axe to make an axe handle the model is always close at hand you know um and so yeah i guess it was always right there for me hiding in plain sight
1: you mentioned how cycling was an early interest of yours where did that start or how did it start
0: you know i swear it must have been from watching uh, none. Nothing. Nothing. I'm gonna tell you is a surprise. Um, will be a surprise. It was probably from watching the Kevin Bacon film Quicksilver. Have you ever seen it? I have not. So Kevin, it's like some 1987 stock market cl- crash, Black Monday type of thing, where Kevin, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Bacon is like, you know, Wall Street hotshot asshole type, and an opening sequence he gets in you know one of those yellow cabs and um, a bike messenger it's classic like vintage 80s new york bike messengers kind of like weaving in and out and kevin bacon's mad that he's not going to get to the trading floor on time or whatever and so he does that stereotypical s- stockbroker shit and like gives 20 bucks to the driver and be like 20 bucks if you can beat that guy <laughs> and so there's this whole chase scene between this black dude bike messenger who's fly on a single speed fixie racing through Manhattan, jumping up on like loading docks, jumping down. And he's got like a maroon beret to the side, like, you know, like young Lords, just awesome. And, uh, at the end, like, yeah, Kevin, uh, Kevin Bacon gets jammed to the light the dude turns around and spits on the windshield and like gives him a fucking finger. And I think it just like really galvanized.
1: <laughs> that's who you wanted to be.
0: I mean, that's maybe who I felt, you know, was inside. Um, amazingly, the, um, the messenger in the beginning of the film was a uh, 1984 Olympian, Nelson Vales, uh, the legendary cyclist who actually did have roots as a bike messenger became, before winning some medals uh, at LA, in la in
1: 1984
0: so um even my misperceptions of cycling is that it's a black thing
1: (laughs) (laughs) where did it go from there did you end up buying a bike and going on rides or you know pretending that you were a bike messenger just raising all kinds of hell of course so
0: definitely had like the old tanker 10 speed that i got for like 20 dollars at a garage sale and was like riding around my little town and jumping off curbs and jumping off loading docks and like the Nelson Bales of my town, right? Like, just like, ah! Um, and then kind of realized that wasn't cycling at all. And then kind of got, if so that was 87. And then got into, that was like 88. And then 1989, uh, obviously like the world shook a little bit. Because of uh, Ironman triathlon, uh, infamously, and then um, Greg LeMond at the Tour de France. So, um, yeah, those kind of events that could be on a wide world of sports, you know, on the weekend could really like capture a kids' imagination. Um, and and and, I think endurance sports really attracted me early on because. <laughs> I didn't have to join. I wasn't I wasn't in danger. I wasn't in any danger of getting cut from the team. Um and uh and so cycling was cool. And also I think that like running, cycling just intrinsically had this sense of freedom where you're just like out in the middle of the country riding on hills with no one around and your parents didn't know where you were and you were just gone for hours, you know, with your own resources and your own devices and your own like water bottle and your own granola bar. Um, And then amazingly, I had like a little breakthrough. I remember reading in a magazine that you're supposed to like spin your first thousand miles. So instead of like chomping on bikes and stuff like that, I really just kept it in the small ring for like the first thousand miles of the season. And um, after that, once I started big rigging, I was like, just you know, not winning races, but I was on a local level, kind of like up near the front of a pack. But the season that things caught fire for me and I got in shape, I, I ended up crashing like every race. And someone said to me, like, you, you can't run and do, you're going to have to choose because the cycling's messing up your running because I was bloody and battered all summer. How old were you? Um, I was like 14 or 15. I, I rode a century. I rode my first century. Um the weekend before I started freshman in high school. So I wore like my corny, like hundred mile bike ride <laughs> t-shirt, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe not on the first day, but maybe on the second day of, of high school. <laughs> Where were you living at the time? I was living in, in Buffalo, like in a town South of Buffalo.
1: And you were running as well as cycling. That was still a part of your life at the time?
0: Yeah, I was I was on the track team. Um, like I said, like you didn't get cut. Um, maybe I thought I was a four hundred hurdler, um, but it was really after it was really that freshman year that I uh, I was forced into the two mile. Uh, <laughs> I was forced into running the two mile and gave up on dreams of being a four hundred hurdler.
1: I know a little bit about your history with the two mile, but I'd love for you to recall the story of your mom, what she said to you after you would race. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) my
0: my mom's cold, like, you know, like, oh, I wish my mom would be out of the race, but after a while, it's just a lot. She's cheering loud and she's doing like black power, like 70s cheering. But it's like early 90s, like in the white ass town. It's just like, come on, brother, you know. Um, and and I was like always in last place. and even though I was in last place, I would still collapse at like you you would have thought it was like Roger Bannister. You know that photo of Bannister when he was <laughs> before that the look on his face. That was me running like 1358 in the two mile like, ah, and then collapse in a heap. And my mom always used to say that like I was so slow that um, the whole team would be on the bus and the engine idling wait for, waiting for me to finish just so we could like go back to our school after a meet. They'd turn the lights out on me uh, as I was running the race. So I definitely didn't have any auspicious beginnings um, at the beginning of, of my running exploits by any sort of the imagination.
1: At that point of your life, were you in love with the sport or was it just something that you did? I'm trying to think about when,
0: when I loved it, because I was definitely obsessed, you know, I definitely, it definitely like ruled all my thoughts, you know, um, it definitely affected my college decisions, it definitely affected the way I saw the world. Um, and so, I guess, in some senses, in some senses of what it's like to be in a relationship, I definitely was in love with running. Um, and that happened early on, but at the same time, I really threw myself into it with such an intensity that it was also early on, like an ethic and like a practice and like a, uh, it was, it was like, it was a craft, you know, it definitely was something to be worked at, not just like loved I suppose
1: it's interesting that you had that relationship with it at that age because I don't think that's the case for many teenagers
0: yeah maybe some are out there you know like when you're really diligently kind of recording your workouts Um, it's funny to have people in black roses (laughs) You know, sometimes I see, like, birth dates, you know, on the intake info for Black Roses or you're doing, like, flights or travel info for somebody or registering for a race. And I see some people's birth dates, and I can, like, go and, like, tell you the workout I did on, like, the day people were born, you know? So there definitely was, like, a stretch there where I was, like, doing a, a meticulous accounting of the training. And I think as much as I really had some, like, overwrought journal entries about, this girl or that I definitely was really emotional about running too. So, um, like I said, it ruled, it ruled my thoughts and, uh, affected a lot of my decision-making. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's part of the weirdness. I thought that a lot of people were like that, but maybe not so many were.
1: Who were your heroes growing up? Hmm.
0: Steve Prefontaine, Henry Rono, um, Moses Kip Tenui, um, Steve Holman, and, uh, especially Todd Williams. Um, it's weird to have heroes that now I follow on Instagram and, um, it's tough to have heroes like dm you that i like that you, you know you, you never meet your heroes like block your don't even ha- block your heroes don't don't cuz when they dm you what i yeah i didn't i sometimes i don't dm back i got to go after this talk with you i got to go write a couple people back
1: <laughs> <laughs> well let's go down that road a little bit because It couldn't have been more than three or four weeks ago from when we're talking right now. You texted me, and it was a really short text with something along the lines of like, "Fuck my life!" Bob Kennedy just DM'd me on Instagram.
0: I didn't write him back. I haven't written him back yet. Why? I. What what would you do? You'd be like, "Ah, hey, yeah, fella, yeah, cool, thanks."
1: It's a fair point. I would probably sit with it for a little while. Yeah. I don't know how long. Several weeks, like
0: five, give it, you know,
1: six, seven,
0: eight weeks. I'm going to get back. I'm going to set a Thanksgiving deadline and I'm <laughs> going to write this guy back because it's like, how is like this legendary dude, like, t- you know, it started because he wrote this wild anecdote um, on his Instagram. He's not an Instagram dude. Um, you know, he's like, He's still kind of today like who he was. I mean, classic dude from Indiana, um, earnest, straightforward guy. And um, man, at the height of the civil unrest that was kind of like gripping our nation several weeks ago, he writes this anecdote about Steve Holman, uh, who you know was America's sort of greatest miler um, for a, a few for a few years there in the early to mid nineties, um, definitely was was some of the best in the world. But kind of had the misfortune of being just off the Olympic cycle, so his two or three years kind of were were in between, you know, Olympic peaking. I'd like to think, but anyways, he was talking about Holman. Uh, uh, Kennedy was saying that he and Holman were roommates in Los Angeles for a meet in Los Angeles, and we're riding around and hanging out a little bit. And he was just shocked by the amount of like discrimination that Holman was subjected to at the time. And it's like showing your card when you come in the hotel room, the parking lot attendant dressing all like the casual and not so casual racism that Black Americans experience all the time. And Kennedy was just so caught off guard by it. And um Holman just I guess apparently turned to him blithely at, at one point and was like, Yeah, man, this is new for you, but this happens to me every day. And, you know I I from what I remember, Kennedy said that he said something like, And if and if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, which as you know is a quote from Eldridge Cleaver, the Minister of Information of the, the Black Panthers. So the idea that first I couldn't believe that Kennedy and Holman were just like driving around LA in 94 in a drop top Benz or whatever, like in my <laughs> mind, you know, I was like, oh my God. Um, and then the fact that like Holman, America's best miler, was experiencing racism in all these overt and covert ways at a time that I was also kind of struggling as like a young black distance runner in a white milieu. Um, and then mind blown that there's like a kind of a vague reference to Eldridge Cleaver. And then the fact that like Bob Kennedy decades later would be writing about it on Instagram during the fever pitch of these, you know, protests over the deaths of, uh, of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and, and Brianna Taylor and others. Um, ah, I gotta be honest with you. I, 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 just came across the IG and I start I, I teared up, you know, I mean, just like me there with my phone cried a little bit. Um, suddenly so uh I wrote some comment I kind of glossed over like what I just told you and yeah dude dm'd me after I got a, I feel bad <laughs> like I gotta I didn't know what to say I was like yeah I didn't know what to say I still don't yeah it was just interesting to kind of to reflect on on that era with with those guys to think that they were you know it's weird when you think about your idols they're always and forever frozen in amber, you know? You never really think about them as as real people have in real lives. Even their struggles to you seem to be lessons, you know? Right. Um, and so it's it was just kind of weird to just think about two young, broke distance runners knocking around L.A., kind of like talking about what it means to be them as people, not as like competitors or runners or guys on the cover of runner's world you know
1: so i know you haven't responded to him yet but let's talk through it how do you begin to formulate a response to someone who was one of your heroes as you were coming up in the sport about a very sensitive topic that you were experiencing yourself at the time
0: It's tough because you have to turn back on all your, 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 you have to turn back on your entire personal industry of hero making, you know? Um, I learned this in Africa on like one of my first trips to, to the continent. I was randomly ended up meeting a legendary band leader from this incredible uh, group from Senegal, Orchestra Baobab. And, uh, you know, I was music journalist at the time. I had written about Orchestra Baobab when I was at the Fader. And so to be meeting the leader of the band, like in a hotel parking lot in Dakar, I was like bowing down. And, you know what I mean? I didn't know if I needed to kiss this dude's shoes or whatever. This dude's like a master musician. And the guy who introduced us, this young guy in his band introduced us and just pulled me a sign. It's like, hey, man, you know, we don't, we don't really, in Africa, we don't really do all that. Like, and and here I had grown up again with the aforementioned uh, cultural nationalism, you know, thinking about like honoring your elders and respect to the ancestors and all that. But really from that moment on, I began to think about our, our icons and our heroes as living people. And like, what do they want? You know what I mean? Like, a lot of them probably don't want to be put on the pedestal. You know what I mean? Um, They want to be kind of interacted with as people. You know? Like, my relationship with Herman Silva is super interesting because you definitely can't disrespect dude. You definitely can't, like, trample on his laurels or kind of disrespect his legacy or his accomplishments. But at the same time, he, like, wants somebody to go out and, like, run hard with him. He wants to like stomp out somebody, you know, climbing up a mountain to 10,000 feet, you know, at the training camp by his house in Mexico. So it's it's interesting um like when you're sitting with elliot Kipchoge, he doesn't really want you to like ask for his autograph and ask for you know his insight for how you can break 4 hours in the marathon. He wants to kind of like talk about his ideas for like the gift of of running for people you know what i mean so i guess with with kennedy it's like a cognitive leap for me to think about him as like a 50 something white dude from indiana who's watching the world turn and burn you know and him reflecting on his relationship with like a black competitor
1: uh 30 years ago you know just take some time for you to process it yeah for sure for sure going back to your youth I read in an interview with you maybe I heard it on a podcast that you considered yourself a writer since the age of four and I'm interested in what your initial attraction to the craft was
0: yeah I don't I don't, I don't know if I'm attracted to it now. I just It's just like, <laughs> it's just what I do. I mean, like, so for me, I was just always in love with image and text. I would start by drawing the pictures and then like my cousin would, I would dictate the dialogue or the story to my cousin and she would write out the lines. And then I learned how to, you know, write my own letters or whatever. And, and then... Yeah, I just loved, I, I guess I love storytelling. I guess I see writing in the service of storytelling. Um, and if, maybe I'd be rich and maybe I'd do a lot more writing or other kinds of writing if it wasn't so bound up in, in stories. You know that Joan Didion quote, like, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, I guess i I kind of work, in that real house.
1: So you'd consider yourself more of a storyteller than a writer.
0: Yeah, I like, I like, I like the title of writer because it's so democratic and it's so um, universal. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that telling true lies is <laughs> is my is my zone. What does your current
1: writing practice look like?
0: I actually, again, you know, going keep going back to the Samad Arbery thing, but that to me was a personal call of action to sit down and just write without any pressure or any sort of formulation. And so I've just been taking a lot of notes. I've just been doing a lot of free writing. I've been doing a lot of research and then just transcribing it in, you know, Uh, A notebook, just to have material, just to have words on paper, um, and just to get into that rhythm. Um, When I'm not under pressure, I usually find a line or two or three of text just kind of coming into my mind, usually as I'm running. Um, And I hold on to that. Sometimes I'll write it down And then I just mine that. I just think about it and mine that and mine that and mine that over the course of days, sometimes months. I mean, I've been working on some essays. Just even, I've been working on some captions for Instagram for like four years. Stuff that I haven't, (laughs) 2,250 characters that I haven't published yet. So there's like two or three essays that I'm still working on.
1: at, at 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 all times, you know. And what are those essays about that you would sit on them for such a long period of time, knowing that at some point you want to get it out into the world?
0: I think from my study of literature and study of poetry, um, when you have the experience, when you've read a work, not for a test and not to you know recite to a girl. Up in her dormitory window, or whatever. But when you just kind of work on a poem and your understanding and your experience of it, your relationship with it over the course of years, the way that someone might work at a loom or a sculptor might, you know, toil over a piece of stone, <clears throat> sometimes these poems yield unexpected meaning. I mean, more often than not, they can yield unexpected meaning. Um, Decades after the first time, you know, you 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 read them. And that's anyone from Seamus Heaney and, and Gawi Kanell and Amir Baraka and Gary Snyder to like Nas or or Jiza from Wu Tang clan. I mean, so it, it, it can you can always hear something in a different way. For me, I've been working on ideas to just understand them more deeply. I'll give you an example. Uh, I've been working on this idea since 2017, since July of 2017, when I was wondering if my attraction to running as a kid was seeing my name in the paper after a big meet or a dual meet with, with, with my time next to my name. I don't really care about PRs, and I knew I wasn't really proud of the PRs because the times weren't that great. You know, you and I both know that there's always somebody around the corner who's faster than you, so it wasn't about that. But I, I started to wonder, decades later, if running for me was the first time that I had ever had facts ascribed to my name. And I wonder if being, lied about and, you know, called racial epithets from a young age and to know from age four or five that I'm living in a society that speaks of you in a way that you know is not accurate and you know that not who yourself to be. Um, And so for an entire lifetime of people lying to you and lying about you, saying you did something that you didn't do, saying that you were someplace that you weren't, somebody saying or assuming you would do something or had done something that had never even entered your mind. I think running and getting times for the first time for me as a teenager was the first time that I ever had experience with facts. You know what I mean? Like you can't lie about your time. You can't lie about your race. It's there in the newspaper, in the in the small sec, <laughs> in the in the results section. And I think that that experience was so intoxicating to me that like you could call me whatever you want, and you could say all these racist stereotypes about black people you want, but you can't never say that Knox Robinson didn't run 9:41 on a Tuesday night. You know
1: what I mean? Yeah. So, in in a lot of ways, for you, it almost kind of leveled things in a way.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't absolve you from from any malfans or like doing wrong things, and it doesn't make you a better person either. Um, but that that's true of facts in general, right? Facts are just facts. Facts aren't necessarily good or bad. Facts just are literal records of a moment in time and i think for for the black american experience is probably characterized by um as again didion would say in that essay like the shifting phantasmagoria that defines our lives you know um so i think that yeah running those times and seeing my name in the paper was validating in some some way
1: i'm curious how is your relationship with running the sport of running the pursuit of running the culture of it changed and evolved over the course of your lifetime
0: i mean it's interesting i, I was so deep into it as a kid um and then once i stopped i i don't ever Know how I stopped because I'm so deep in it again. So, for me in my 20s, when I wasn't running and I was like living out all my dreams and like fantasies as a writer in New York and like editor in chief of a magazine with an expense account and like you know, crashing through the front windows of bars and jumping off a plane in Rio and whatever, like that now seems to me to be an aberration. Now that I'm like working at the practice that i did when i was younger um that seems to be full circle for me and so what i've learned over the course of the lifetime what's interesting to me now is that i'm really looking at it and i relate much more to um ceramicists maybe than i do other runners i relate more to jazz musicians than I do a lot of other runners because I'm looking at it in terms of um, practice and expression, how that exists in the world and how that interacts in the world, you know?
1: Yeah, and it doesn't sound too dissimilar in some ways to how you were thinking about it as you described earlier when you were a teenager.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess... I haven't grown up much. where <laughs> yeah. um, they say you can—you you, can—you're uh, only young once, but you can be immature for the rest of yeah. your life. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that also, though, with a sense of wonderment, um, I'm able to go back and and look at running with greater and greater frequency with a child's eyes. That's another thing that I've been working on for several years is this idea that um I've probably talked to you about it before, but this this idea from this um Korean uh Korean monk master here that was actually based in LA, he said that uh in in the mind of the beginner the possibilities are endless, but in the mind of the master, the possibilities are few. And you know, a lot of times we, we aspire to mastery. I, I've, I've actually, like in, in recent months, sort of started to stop using that word. But um, in, in, we, we want to be um, masters of this. The, 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 the category of, of racing over the age of 40 is known as masters. Um, the idea of mastery, um, in many senses, um, when it's not problematic, is definitely seen as something to aspire to. Um, but so, so I was really working with this idea that, you know, to really narrow down the possibilities. And I was even thinking about it in the context of the marathon. When I was thinking about this, I had just run 233 in Berlin and I was going into New York and I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm recovered, maybe I'm not, but what am I going to take from running 233 in Berlin that I'm going to put into practice when it comes to New York? And I was thinking of, in the mind of the master, the possibilities are few. And so I started to think about masters of the marathon and folks who had mastered that marathon course. And you see, in these epic wins in New York, you can make one, maybe two moves. Like, sometimes a winner can make two moves. But it's usually a, 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 a dr- in dramatic fashion, you know? Like, maybe in the previous generation, there'd be like, an incredible move on uh, on First Avenue, heading uptown, right. Um, and then I think in more recent years, you're seeing some real sensational finishes that 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 start on on Fifth Avenue or even you know when coming out of the park a mile from the finish. Um, but in the context of that that Zen idea, it's really not about the master only having a few possibilities, is that we should aspire to have the endless possibilities of the beginner. We should always wake up every day um, and aspire to perceive the world with a sense of wonderment that a beginner has or that a child has. And so for me, at this stage in my running journey, I'm really having a revitalized experience, just kind of like taking it back to the beginning and, and rebuilding and exploring and, and thinking about it from other perspectives. And I maybe that's a little boring, but um, nevertheless, that's, that's kind of where I'm at.
1: No, I, I think it's exciting. It resonates with me as well. I'm curious to get your thoughts on what that means for you exactly in terms of what you pursue, which obviously, given the state of affairs in the world right now, it's all up in the air anyway. A lot is up in the air,
0: you know. But it's just like—I mean, what's up in the air? Uh, uh, there's some, some There's definitely a, 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 a tragic pandemic that's upon us. That's definitely taking a human toll. But speaking in terms of like racing and like sort of the 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 demonstrable, you know, accoutrement of, of, of running. I don't know. Racers will come back sooner or later, you know, but that doesn't really define my relationship with it. What really is uh, <clears throat> interesting and engaging to me right now is like thinking about what I'm going to do when it's going to happen, not when it's going to happen, you know. Just the other day, Marvin Garcia um, from Good Vibes Track Club in LA, we finally got to this park that we, he and I have been talking about. Kenneth Hahn State Recreation Area, uh, right, right on the edge of the Crenshaw District in Los Angeles, and I was running on this little dirt path, and in 45 seconds, I almost started to cry because I've been like waiting to find a park like this for years. <laughs> and I was running, and I was looking at the terrain as it, the the this dirt path, you know, moved around, and and I was like, oh, I, I'm gonna run 225 in the marathon. I'm not even worried about. I mean, I I haven't even been running hardly anything for five months but just the feel of my foot on this dirt gravel path I was so inspired and my body was coming alive that I was just like oh anything's possible if I got a park like this to run in on a regular basis
1: anything's possible what is it about that park or that feeling that you just described that makes you feel that way for a runner it's pure um
0: it's it's uniquely situated to a handful of neighborhoods you can run on perfectly manicured dirt trails and like a wind is coming out of the mountains um outside the city that can be like a really stiff breeze that's like really here in the middle or in the end of july um can can be perfect conditions for running um the the trails um in some sections of the park are just real rollers you know the kind that gets you into shape really quick um and just kind of teach your body to prepare for a wide variety of paces and changes in pace um it really reminds me of like the stuff i used to train on in high school when i had my first you know breakthroughs in running when i stopped kind of <laughs> getting last place in the two mile <laughs> like you know closer up front for contention. And so I'm really looking to just um kind of getting into this park every day and 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 then uh and my body and mind responding accordingly.
1: Talk to me a bit about LA. I know as of this conversation you've been there for maybe about 2 weeks. You've spent a good chunk of the last few months in Mexico City and you're going to be spending a lot more time in Southern California moving forward. Can we dig into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to be living uh, in in the Crenshaw district, um, the historic Crenshaw district, right in South Central Los Angeles, two blocks from my very good friend Marvin Garcia, who's the founder of Good Vibes Track Club in LA. There's a bunch of members from from GVTC who live in the area. Um, folks who are a little familiar with what my work know that I've been like going back and forth to Los Angeles for the past several years with increasing frequency just to really connect with so many of these amazing runners and their stories, but also the amazing energy that you can find in, in Los Angeles. Um, and that quite frankly, I haven't really seen shared or portrayed to the extent that I would assume, you know, um, given how amazing things are out here
1: and what do you see your role in it being moving forward um i'm definitely excited to bring
0: some of the learnings uh not only in the past 10 years of of the running renaissance in new york but also um you know some of some of the lessons in terms of how groups are organized and and all that but also just to continue to democratize um, the sport uh, and and the practice. And so for me, kind of bringing what I've learned from observing uh, elite distance runners and coaches, how I can bring that to, you know, folks in Los Angeles. There's already great coaches in Los Angeles. There's already, you know, great running groups in Los Angeles, but... You know, maybe there's an opportunity for me to, you know, start free jogging classes in you know historic Lamert Park Plaza for for seniors and for young people. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to, you know, kind of uh, share even more training practices with folks in in Good Vibes Track Club. Maybe there's a way for me to kind of connect with. You know a lot of these other amazing runners and their narratives maybe tell those stories um and support in whatever way i can and also i could just keep to myself and run in this park and get in really good shape and then whip on people's asses when racing and to come back into play well
1: don't go too hard. I don't need you whooping my ass when races come back. When you threw this two twenty five marathon goal out there, I was like, son of a bitch, Knox, I've already I thought I was happy with my two twenty seven thirty-three. I I could I could leave that and and move on with my running life. And now you got me thinking bigger, ah, which I see
0: this park V? I I mean, I know you're living up in paradise up there. We've run together, you know, in your locals, but this right here, it's like Ethiopia. This is this running right here in this park it's like it's like Africa style you know it's it's I can't wait
1: what is this gonna mean for your relationship with New York where you have spent the last several years
0: um, I've been in New York yeah man I've been in New York for decades right uh, I've been in New York since the mid mid to late 90s um, and I'll be back I mean I'm always gonna be a New Yorker um, I'm excited to, to be, uh, an alien in Los Angeles. Um, so I'll be back in New York once or twice a month. I've got a bunch of projects there and Black Roses NYC is going to continue to, you know, uh, flourish at pace. So there's definitely some, some great stuff happening, um, in New York and on the East coast. I just, for reasons of like, you know, raising a daughter with my partner, Lita, um, and, and uh, just the kind of general conditions that the city's in, it's just going to make sense to, to be in Los Angeles for a while just to have a little more space.
1: What else are you cooking up?
0: I've really used this um, shutdown to kind of retool my process. I've shared it a little bit with folks, but I'm building um, a high-altitude training camp with Herman Silva, um, next to his, his current camp in the um, mountains outside of Mexico City. So that, that like, kind of feels like we're breaking ground on that as early as September. And, you know, God willing, it could be done by the end of the year. I'm working with this incredible architect, Michelle Roshkind, who's kind of one of the most um, lauded uh, architects in the world. He's from Mexico City, great runner um, as well. And so the idea that I'm going to be able to kind of like put Michelle and Herman Silva like in conversation with what it would mean to build a 21st century training camp um, is is something to they drive me crazy in good ways. <laughs> um, so that's that's incredible.
1: Who are you thinking about as the, I hesitate to call it end consumer of this training camp, but the person or peoples who will go there and take advantage of it?
0: Um, On the one hand, to be honest, like I'm not really capitalist inclined. And so um, it's not such a scary prospect that I need to charge $500 a night and return on the investment. So it's not set up for that. There's no business plan behind it. I hope I'm not killing myself to say that. But um, on the other hand, uh, selfish motivations aside, you know, a chance for me (laughs) later in life to have an excuse and a place to go to, like train at altitude and lean out for three weeks and like soak in the tub and get ready to beat your ass next time we line up in a (laughs) Um, (laughs) race. I really wanted to to open up the opportunity to share with the next generation of, of passionate athletes what I've learned um, later on in life. And so really when you see how some of these groups are just making it happen with minimal resources, but a lot of um, dedication and passion, I want to support that. I mean, when you look at the Tin Man Group and what they're doing, they don't, they don't need this idea at all. But if ever, you know, they would want to mix things up or, you know, diversify their training, I, I kind of see like throwing them the keys to that, you know. What about like an independent athlete like Ali Kiefer, you know, or, or Molly Seidel, you know, athletes that maybe haven't kind of been part of um, a big brand sponsored, fully funded training camp experience. Um, What about folks kind of coming out and and training in Mexico, you know, um, at this camp that Hermon Silva built in the mid-90s after he won New York City Marathon back-to-back? So I'm definitely thinking about um, the next generation of athletes coming and definitely also sub-elites and people who want to come and, you know, friends and family kind of coming up there and getting off the grid for a while. It's going to have all that. But it definitely, in spirit, is also kind of dedicated to to people who
1: just need a shot, you know? You mentioned how Herman Silva's there. He sort of set this up after he won New York City. How do you tie in the storytelling element to the training camp itself?
0: It's interesting that the biggest reason that I, I, I can't, like leave this idea alone is because of the stories. I mean, to think that Herman Silva and his epic win in New York after you know going the wrong way with with 1K to go before the finish and coming back to win, the man himself is like a walking storybook. Also, when you spend time with him in Mexico, he's such a son of the soil and a man of the people that he can go anywhere and speak to anybody. He's not like one of these guys who just kind of is sitting around his trophy room and you know dusting off his his medals. He's <laughs> he's still fit. He's always keep coaching folks every day on Instagram and in real life. He moves around the countryside and he's knows everybody. You know he so he's a real example of who we should aspire to. Or who I aspire to be um, in, in terms of just like all his efforts you know, kind of belong to the people. And so, so much storytelling is there. Um, And then when you're waking up and you're looking out the window and you're seeing like the snow crusted, you know, cap of an exploded stratovolcano there in the distance and know that Herman and other amazing athletes like trained there or for us to go there and run. I mean, it's just otherworldly. And it's all kind of right there. So for me to help put a frame on it and uh, kind of make it more viable for people to, to check into the headspace of it all, I know that it's going to have uh, tremendous effects because the results are already there um, for Herman and, and others who experience it. So I'm looking to like, put the pieces together for others.
1: I love it. Hope to experience it myself. Yep. Last question before we wrap up this conversation it's a common one that I ask of my guests but what is exciting you about running right now we we've talked
0: about it through this whole conversation but I'm just I'm I'm really excited to um, continue to like seek out stories that maybe haven't been told and to share them with folks who maybe hadn't considered them before I um, I'm definitely going to continue to work in um, in 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 elevating the legacy of, of of untold stories in running and running culture in our in our country. Um, in particular, I'm really excited that I'm going to be doing a lot more storytelling and sharing around the New York Pioneer Club this fall as well. So, um, you know, just kind of like great legacies and inspirational stories. You know, because we need inspiration so much right now. I mean, the, the COVID pandemic was already an opportunity for us to reset and relinquish our narcissism and our self-obsession and our sort of single-minded um, focus on the materialist and acquisitional aspects that like big brands and big city marathons kind of were dangling in front of people. It's a good chance to go back to the grassroots and now coming through the social upheaval that uh you know has also kind of gripped the world in these past several months we need stories and we need inspirational stories and and the story of Ted Corbett and the New York Pioneer Club you know the the first integrated sports club in America in the in in, in the decade before Jackie Robinson integrated baseball and we we definitely need to like hear more about that and learn more about that and to that narrative so i'm really looking forward to continuing my service of, of those stories and those ideals
1: i'm not gonna let you end it right there let's dig into that just a little bit more can you get into the specifics of where you'll be telling those stories and and where people will be able to find them
0: yeah, I, I'm excited to, um, it looks like I'm going to be doing a, a partnership with Tracksmith, actually, to um, release a capsule collection um, about the the New York Pioneer Club um, this fall. Uh, this fall would have been the 50th anniversary of the New York City Marathon. Um, and the New York City Marathon is, is interesting for so many reasons, but the course was designed by Ted Corbett, um, the first Black American to represent the United States uh, in the marathon at the Olympics uh, in Helsinki in 1956. Corbett later went on to become the first president of New York Roadrunners. Um, and uh, and so Ted Corbett um, is as much of part of running legend and lore in New York City and is as an intrinsic part of the New York City Marathon storytelling. Um, that I feel that hasn't really been elevated to the extent that you might expect or to the extent that we should expect. So I'm really looking forward to kind of using an opportunity to work with Tracksmith and get some ideas out about about the Pioneer Club.
1: I love it. I look forward to checking it out. I can't think of a better person to tell those stories and elevate them to a wider audience Knox, thank you so much for the past i don't know how long we've been going an hour and a half or so um and for coming back on the morning shakeout podcast
0: mario thanks for the opportunity and thanks for all your listeners to you know sticking through it with us to the end so i appreciate everybody's time and attention and uh and i look forward to seeing you in real life soon
1: All right, thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this week's episode. Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. This holiday season, Tracksmith is acknowledging that running is a gift, and that this year, the miles meant more. They want to say Thank you, Running, for being the simple act that has helped keep us sane in a turbulent year, and they're offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out Tracksmith.com and use the code MARIO15, that's mario five when you check out. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years, and they don't bounce, they don't slip, they're polarized to protect your eyes, and they come in a nice range of styles and fun colors, like a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Did I mention that they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet, with most pairs coming in at 25 to 35 bucks a piece? If you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of shades— head over to gooder.com slash mario or enter the code mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order that's g-o-o-d-r.com slash mario that's m-a-r-i-o and you'll get free shipping on your first pair of shades look good run gooder If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Last two things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to, and you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast.